Welcome to Tucson New Thought. There's a, okay. So there's a story about one time when I sang this song. And actually there's at least one person who was in the room when this happened. Uh, well, there are two people, if you include me, I was in the room when this happened because I was singing the song. <clears throat> so in 2015, when I was still at the Center for Spiritual Living Toronto, serving as the spiritual director there, we uh, hosted the Canadian New Thought Conference that year. And it was a four-day conference, so great to bring people from all over Canada and a bunch of people from the United States uh, to Toronto to show them that magnificent city and to engage in four days of just deep spiritual practice. And it culminates, these Canadian New Thought conferences always culminate with the host center always presenting their celebration on the Sunday, and that's usually the closing event. And what I had done in creating this is I was the second minister to be in the position of service at that, uh, at that, um, center. That's what I'm trying to say. And, um, and, and, and when I did the lineup of speakers for that day, of course, that's the day that I got to, you know, do a, do a talk as part of the conference. And we invited Dr. Ken Gordon, who is the spiritual leader of Centers for Spiritual Living. He gave a talk that day. And then another minister gave a talk that day. And I'm not going to say who that minister was, and I'm not going to give any information around how you might be able to identify that particular individual. But they gave their talk, and then we did this song basically in a similar spot in the service, but it was post this person's talk. And I got to that point where I go, closer, closer, closer to my sacred source. And you know, all the music drops out and we go quiet. And in that moment, I hear some rustling. And this person stands up and says, well, I'm so sorry, I have to go do a memorial service. Um, I'm gonna, I have to leave, but thank you so much for being here. I walked out. And in that moment, I'm standing there with the microphone going, do I acknowledge this? No, I just finished the song. The show must go on. And you know what? It's being open and receptive to whatever's happening in the moment. What a great lesson for me in that moment to say, you know what? I am free to allow the flow to happen in exactly the way that it needs to happen. And let's face it, it was a great hilarious moment, you know, because we're so serious in our spiritual practice sometimes, right? We get so serious. And then something like that happens. And it says to each and every one of us, you know what? Lighten up. Lighten up. Spiritual practice is meant to be fun. And yes, we do serious things. We do meditation and we do prayer and we, right? But let's have a good time. Let's have a good time in doing this. So (laughs) Of course, I say that and I think I could not have chosen a more deep quote to launch my to launch my talk today than uh, than I did. And those of you who may have studied in this realm will understand that when I say I'm quoting Thomas Troward today, you may hear some groans from people who will say, oh, Thomas Troward. Me too. (laughs) Thomas Troward is my guy. Thomas Troward. Uh, who was born in 1847 and made his transition in 1916, he was a, he was a predominant 
uh, person in the development of New Thought, and in fact was the first president of the International Alliance of New Thought. He was a judge in India, and uh, uh, when he retired from the bench, he went back to England, which is where he was from, and that's where he really engaged in his time to really become a major New Thought leader. And much of what we study, much of what Ernest Holmes studied was Thomas Troward. In fact, we say the two greatest influences on Ernest Holmes in the development of this thing called religious science were Thomas Troward and Ralph Waldo Emerson. And what I always say is that Ralph Waldo Emerson was really the love part of the equation, that when you read Emerson's essays, it's all about the impulse of love and how it creates as oneness in our lives. And Thomas Troward was the law part of the equation because he was a judge, he was a lawyer and a judge, right? So he came at it from a very, under, from a perspective that was very much rooted in logic, the logical progression of understanding. And so I found this quote today that goes right in alignment with my talk, which is, and you know, it's funny, my talk today is you are magnificent. Because I say it every single week, but I've never done a talk called you are magnificent. And there's a reason that you are magnificent. And for me, it is rooted in what Troward coined as the divine ideal. If you read uh, his book, The Creative Process and the Individual, there's a whole part of it that is devoted to the divine ideal. And he wrote this, where he explains what the divine ideal is. He says, this is the divine ideal an individuality which recognizes its source and recognizes also the method by which it springs from that source and which is therefore able to open itself up in, a, in itself a channel by which that source can flow interruptedly. I'm gonna go back through all of this just so you know. So, <laughs> With the result that from the moment of this recognition, the individual lives directly from the originating life as being themselves a special direct creation and not merely as being a member of a generic race. The individual who has reached this stage of recognition thus finds a principle enduring life within themselves. So my next question is, in what way this principle is likely to manifest itself? It's a lot of words. It's a lot of words. I'm gonna break it all down for you. Because when I read this, I was like, oh, yes, I get this. I understand this. And this is so motivating for me because it is the answer to why we can claim our magnificence. Why is it you are magnificent? And it starts with this idea. An individuality which recognizes its source. That's what he starts with. The, this is the divine ideal. An individuality which recognizes its source. Each and every one of us are individualized expressions of an infinite power, an infinite creative power that we call source. Many of us, we call it God, we call it love. I say this all the time, right? Are you getting tired of me saying it? We call it God, we call it love, we call it this, we call it that, we call it whatever we choose to call it. All of those are limiting ideas for that which is ineffable but constantly unfolding in terms of creation, and it is who and what each and every one of us is. When he says, an individuality which recognizes its source, those of you who have studied the process of affirmative prayer or spiritual mind treatment, as we call it in this philosophy, that's step one, recognition. Source is all that exists, that's it. 
There is nothing else. So this divine ideal and individuality which recognizes its source, that's step one, and recognizes also the method by which it springs from that source. It recognizes the method by which individuality springs forth from that source. That's step two. If source is all there is, if God is all there is, if love is all there is, well, then we cannot be anything separate from that. That's logic, right? We cannot be separate from it. There is only this infinite creative energy and power that is constantly unfolding itself in terms of creation. So I, you, we, every single one of us, everything that exists is part of this infinite wholeness. We are sprung from that source as the source. Which leads me to that great thing that I love to say and shock people who've never heard it said before, and that is to say, I am God, and so are you. Because there can be nothing separate from that good orderly direction. There can be nothing separate from that source. There can be nothing separate. And to, to suppose that we were somehow separate from the divine, I think is arrogant in a way that you know, it basically says, well, I'm something else. I actually think that's arrogant to know who I am and to know that I share this with every single living being, everything that has livingness, and that is everything, even things we consider inanimate. They all have a degree of livingness at their core because if you break it all down, it's all energy experiencing the time and space as matter <laughs> deep. Why we're very much in alignment with, with quantum mechanics, quantum physics. That's a whole class in and of itself. <coughs> so uh, we are sprung from that source energy, and we are that source energy. And, he continues, which is therefore able to open up in itself a channel by which that source can flow in uninterruptedly. That's where we get into trouble. And it's exactly what you were talking about today. Because if we can be an uninterrupted flow of source, then we have no reason to actually sit in this room because we don't need to be reminded. The interruptions come in the way that we utilize this source in our own minds by developing conscious ideas and beliefs that are rooted in fear, that are rooted in feelings of less than, by rooted in feelings of separation. And uninterruptedly truly is the key. To what degree, to what degree can we actually move forth through life with the understanding, the logical understanding, the intellectual understanding that we are God, that we are source, that we are love, we are this creative energy, how do we move through life allowing that to be an uninterrupted flow so, it's, so it pours forth into everything we experience, everything we think, everything we say, everything we do? I find myself getting caught up in the stuff of life. Does that happen to anybody else here? You ever get caught up in the stuff of life? Never, right? No. We do such a good job of interrupting that source flow, and that's all that's happening. When we get caught up in the stuff, thinking that the circumstances out there somehow have bearing or effect on the truth of who we are, we 
block that flow. So what do we do? We know a deeper truth. That moment of recognition, he writes, with the result that from the moment of this recognition, the individual lives directly from the originating life. So he's saying, as soon as we truly understand that we are the expression of this originating life, presence, spirit, source, whatever, and that it is who and what we are as being themselves a special direct creation, not something else. We are that which is, and we are not, now this is also important, we are not merely a member of a generic race. Because those things that get in the way, those ideas, those beliefs that block us from the flow are actually our individualized expression of this infinite power, letting itself be known in our present moment experience. It's actually, those are the things that make us unique. The things that make us unique are the things we layer upon this infinite source to limit our experience of life. Think about that. The things that make us unique are the things that we limit ourselves with in the expression of an infinite power, which is of itself unlimited. So don't worry so much about that stuff anymore. Trust and know that whether you have that stuff in your life or you have that stuff in your life, get it? Because we all got it. We all have this stuff in our lives, and it is the thing that makes us unique. I can look to the things in my past and say, these are the things that shaped my experience of this time and the experience of my life on this plane of action. And I am in a place of choice now whether or not I'm going to continue to let those things be at the forefront of my now, present moment experience moving into the future. We are not merely a member of a generic unfolding infinite, I mean, we are part of the infinite unfolding source, but revel in the fact that we have choice within the infinite to be whomever we would like to be. But how many of us are truly living that way? How many of us? Our unique expression is divinely ordained. It is divinely ordained. Not one of us is generic. Not one of us is unnecessary to life. And I say this sometimes too. If you are here on this plane of action, you are necessary to life. Don't ever forget that. We all matter. We are all magnificent because we are unique. Because I am not my expression is not the same as Christy's expression. And her expression is not the same as my expression, although I would love to be able to play the piano like you play the <laughs> piano. My expression is different from Marvis's, and her expression is different from mine. And how magnificent that this divine source expresses itself in these ways, in myriad ways that says anything is possible because everything is probable. What makes us magnificent, first and foremost, is our uniqueness. The individual, Troward writes, who has reached this stage of recognition, thus finds a principle of enduring life within themselves. So here's part of the message today. 
When we truly know who we are, when we remember who we are, remember who you are, when we truly know who we are, we can let go of the comparisons we make of ourselves to other people. Are any of you there yet? I'm not. I will stand up here and say, I'm not there. I still compare myself. I, you know, in, in a previous experience of my life, I used to compare myself to other actors. Now, what do I do? I compare myself to other ministers. <laughs> and then I say, all right, I see that I am not like that particular minister. And I have to remind myself, what a blessing that I am my own unique expression of ministry. And what a blessing that they are their own unique expression of ministry. You get to decide what the flow of your life is to be. We all get to decide what the flow of our life is to be. So then the next question he writes is, in what way is this principle likely to manifest itself? And that's the infinite question. What are you going to do as this life principle today? Who are you going to be? How are you going to choose to be your magnificence in this world? What are you going to do? On Friday night, we had a movie screening here. Wow, I'm really emotional around that. And, 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 and there were not as many people here as I would have liked, and that's okay because the people that were here were the perfect group to be here. But we screened the movie The Way with Martin Sheen. So have you seen the movie before? Yeah. It's a magnificent, magnificent film about the journey of life as reflected in this one individual man. Well, actually, it's the story of four people, but it's primarily the story of Martin Sheen's character making his way from France to um, Santiago de Compostela on the way, the Camino del Santiago, in Spain. And there are a number of reasons why he chooses to do this 800-kilometer walk. That's 500 miles. Did I do that right? Yeah. Yeah, it's 500 miles. I'm trying to do the math in my brain. 500 miles he walks from France to this cathedral on the coast, on the Atlantic, North Atlantic coast of Spain. But what I love is that he keeps having these visions of his son and his son who very early in the film says to him, you don't choose a life, you live one. And that actually becomes the tagline for the entire movie. Now it's interesting because somebody said, but we do make choices in life, we do choose our life. Somebody said that to me at the screening that night. And I actually stepped back and thought about that a lot because I didn't have really have a response to it in the moment. But I stepped back and I thought about it a lot. And I thought, I think the greater picture is this. Yes, we make choices in our life. Those are the things that make us unique. Absolutely. But when we get mired in the choice, we stop living life. And so if we think that the choice is going to lead us down the road to that thing, which is far away, or even like if I were to walk out the door right now, I have no idea what lies outside that door. I have an idea of what I think lies outside that door, but am I going to live life or live in fear around the choice of whether or not to walk through the door? That's, I think, what is really being expressed here. The four characters in this film 
all move through their own journey, their way, in their own unique, magnificent way. I was like, I want to find another word other than way, but it is the way, right? It's the way. That's what it was, the Tao, the way. It's so funny that, you know, everything is about the way today. And many of them made choices that they started the journey with. And they said, when I get to the end of this journey, then that choice is, to become, is going to come into full fruition in my experience of life. And pretty much across the board, all of them got to the end of the journey and whatever it is they decided was going to be their choice, they did not live up to. The most easy one to understand and recognize is there was one character, the, uh, this woman, who smokes. And she said, I'm putting these down for good when I get to the end of this walk. Now, first of all, I don't know how you could walk 500 miles and be a smoker. That's just me. <laughs> and especially, and she was a smoker, and she's like, yo. But I'm going to put them down. And so she gets to the end of the journey, and she goes into the cathedral, and she goes up, and she touches the effigy there, and she takes her pack of cigarettes, and she lays them down, and she seems like she's going to be done with it. Well, then there's the continuation of the story where they walk to the shoreline, and they're all standing there at the shoreline contemplating this spiritual experience that they've had over the course of more than a month. Because it does take, it takes more than a month to walk this entire journey. And while she's standing there, she pulls out a cigarette and lights up. <laughs> Life is not about the choices we make, it's about living. And I'm not uh, advocating that we should all go out and start smoking. <laughs> We choose our actions and reactions in every moment. Those are the choices we make. That's a life of choice. But if we are choosing something that feels out of integrity or out of alignment with our greatest expression of life, then we're actually blocking the flow. So you are magnificent and you express your magnificence more and more and more the more you unblock the flow. It's up, to you to it's up to you to determine what you will take and learn, I think, from the perception of failure in your life. I talked last week, I said, you know, one of the, one of the things Yoda said is uh, failure, the greatest teacher, is I think every single one of us has failed at something. If you haven't failed, I invite you to stand up here and... Um, <laughs> And try. <laughs> like, I think the, the I think the greatest I think the greatest part of my ministry is that I'm not afraid to stand up here and say that I've failed a lot in my life. Now I can look at things and understand them as failure, which then I can depress myself with, or I can say that's just a part of my journey. That's just a part of my journey. It's part of my unique magnificence. In what ways do I still have in the con my own consciousness? This is the constant work. In what ways do I still have in my consciousness an understanding of myself as a failure? <laughs> and I wrote here, my acting career. You know, I pride myself on my previous career having been an actor. That is a major part of my expression of life. I was doing shows for 25 years before and sort of into my ministry. But if I base my sense of success 
or failure on someone else's opinions of what is success or failure, I do myself a disservice because you know what? I never did Broadway. I never did television except as doing background work. I never did a film. Well, I did one film. So bad. <laughs> so it is such a bad film. But I did a lot of theater. I mean, my career was primarily based in doing small, intimate theater in Los Angeles. And what a magnificent feeling of success I had in that. And that's what success is. It's knowing who you are and feeling the success, not because of what anybody else says. I was fulfilled in what I was doing. And did I get paid for it? Sometimes, but mostly not. But I was fulfilled. And so what better life is there than to feel fulfilled even if you're not making money? Like we, we, we tie our success and failure so much in our financial experience. Let's let that go and know who we are. It's what brought me, actually, theater is what brought me to this. It's what brought me to this. So where's the failure in that? Failure doesn't exist. I want you to really hear that. Failure doesn't exist, except to the degree that you decide that anything in your life has been a failure. And that's the lesson. That's the lesson. I cannot be a failure when I know who I am, ever. All I am is an individualized expression of spirit who is having experiences on this plane of action right here and right now. And in that, I am unique. I am magnificent. Not because of anything I do, not because of anything I say, but simply because I exist here and now, because I am. And each and every one of us is. That's what Troward is saying. So let's see what Ernest Holmes has to say. Mm. There aren't that many options today. <laughs> Would you do the, fa uh, and let me know what number it is, please? 126. 126. <coughs> 126. Oh, there we go. I turned almost right to it. One, two, three, uh, one, two, three, three, two, one. What's the, what paragraph number shall I read? One, two, or three? One, three. one is the first number I heard. <laughs> so I was having a conversation with somebody just the other day about the gendered language that is utilized in this book. And I think the next incarnation of this book needs to remove all the gendered language. But I'm going to read this with the gendered language because that's the way it's written and I just want everyone to understand that I would like to re-edit this book and take out all the gendered language. So in the book he writes this, man thinks and supposes that he lets go of those thoughts, that he has finished with them, but such is not the case for thought becomes subjectified in mind like a seed planted in the soil. 
and unless neutralized, it stays there and determines the attraction and repulsion in the experience of the one thinking. It's exactly what I've been talking about. Our decision of success or failure, our decision of being magnificent or not, our decision of limitation are simply seeds that we are planting in the subjective soil of the mind. They're seeds and we can either nurture and water and feed those seeds or we can say, no, I'm going to let that seed simply dissipate, go back to the nothingness from which it came. What are you choosing to do? What are the thoughts and beliefs? What are the ideas that you are nurturing in your life? Because every single thought is a seed planted in that soil. Every single one. So what are you nurturing today? That's the great question. Are you nurturing your own understanding that you are magnificent? As we step away today from this time and this place and this experience, here's what I would like to offer as your homework. Oh. Homework. I would like you to go about your day, go about your week, and I want you to find one limiting, just one, just one, go easy on yourself, find one limiting idea that you are ready to let go. Just find one limiting idea that you are ready to let go in your life. And then allow yourself to bid it farewell, truthfully, once and for all, in your own unique way, in whatever way suits you. Because that ultimately is spiritual practice. We teach particular methods for spiritual practice here, but spiritual practice, the technique of spiritual practice is whatever works. So what works for you? Find that one limiting idea and bid it adieu. That's your homework this week. I'm so grateful for your attention. I'm so grateful for your love. I'm so grateful for your time. I am so grateful for this community. Thank you. Namaste. Thank you for listening. Visit TucsonNewThought.org for updates on everything that's happening at the center. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram by searching Tucson New Thought. Namaste.